John this morning, 1 John chapter 2. Last week we examined much along the lines of what is happening in our nation and uh, certainly how we should vote. If you're trying to figure some things out there, you have questions there, uh, or you just weren't here last week, let me encourage you to get online and on YouTube. You can find that and uh, take a few moments and listen to that message from last week because I think it's vitally important that we come to this time in our nation's history with a biblical viewpoint. And uh, I didn't say which candidate to vote for, but I did say that we need to vote according to biblical values and how that works in an election like this. And uh, I do believe that we are standing at a crossroad of our nation. I believe this four years ago. I believe it again. And uh, I believe that this could be the election where we lose what we know currently as the United States of America and the culture that we have known and all those things. But you know what? That's not doom and gloom because I also understand the Bible says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He moveth it whithersoever he will. If that happens, it's because God allowed it. And because God has a plan and because on God's timetable, he knows exactly what needs to happen, when it needs to happen, and that'll be all right. Amen? And uh, so in a uh, personal way, I'm praying that the Lord will preserve our freedoms a little bit longer. I'm praying that my children will be able to know what it is to grow up in a free country and uh, where we truly enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy today. But if not then we're still going to serve God, we're still going to go forward, we're still going to have joy, and we're still just going to keep trusting Him. Amen? And uh, so we, uh, we need to go into this time, I believe, with a seriousness. I believe there's a concern for our, nature, uh, our nation that is right. I believe that if you look at Nehemiah in the Bible, you can see very clearly that he was concerned for his nation, and it drove him to praying for his nation. And we ought to be praying for our nation uh, all the time. But we ought to be praying this week, and we ought to be praying intensely this week, for the nation, the United States of America. But let's not be discouraged or depressed. And then on the flip side, if the candidate that you are for ends up winning this election, let's not be so elated and think that that answers the question and the problems. The reality is, what answers the problems is more people coming to know Christ as their Savior and living a life that is according to the Word of God. That's what we need in our nation. And that'll only happen when churches like ours go win their Jerusalem to Christ, reach into their Judea and Samaria and make a difference there, and send missionaries into the uttermost parts of the world to make a difference following the Great Commission that the Lord has given. The hope for America is, just, is more in this room by far than it is in the White House or the State House or uh, the Congressional houses, uh, House. The reality is this is the hope for America, is the Word of God. And uh, we've got to be spreading it. We've got to be talking to people. We've got to be out busy every day. And uh, I've watched this week as hard as our president has worked for votes. And I said, you know, what would it be if every Christian in America would work that hard for souls? And uh, what an incredible difference it would make as we labor in that kind of manner. So I want to encourage you as we go through this time, uh, don't look at this as uh, the great hope or not or whatever it might be. There's some some concern that's right, but uh, let's just take that into prayer. And this week, let's go forward with joy, with excitement, and let's work and labor to get the gospel to the world around us. Amen? I am not going to preach anything political this morning. I'm not going to preach anything along the lines of the election this morning. I did that on purpose last week, uh, and that gives us a little bit of time for uh, hopefully if you're uh, working through some of those areas, for that to work through a little bit. There are some resources out on the uh, desk in the foyer, and so if you have interest, there's some voting guides and some different things out there, uh, some comparisons of uh, platforms and things of that nature you can grab. And so if you need something like that, there's uh, resources there. 
But this morning, I really believe the Lord would just have us to go right back into our study of 1 John and uh, just pick up right where we have been. We kind of took a week last week to move a different direction there. And uh, today, we're going to come right back and just dive right back into this study of 1 John and, uh, and go from there. Because the reality is this, what happens in the political realm uh, while it may matter and all those things, and I think it does, and I think there's a spiritual warfare there as well, the reality is we're not going to change everything we're doing as a church just because of that either. And, uh, and that's why I really believe there just needs to be a coming back and saying, where are we at already in the scripture? And let's just keep plugging away. So First John chapter 2 is where we are this morning. Stand with me, if you will, as we read. First John chapter 2 and beginning in verse number 18. It says, little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest, that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because ye know it. And that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that every one that doeth righteousness is born of him. Father, I pray that you would help us as we study this passage of the scripture. I pray that you would give exactly what we need today and make application to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There's an ongoing battle that takes place in life, and that is the battle for truth. Certainly we see that battle in our nation, certainly we recognize that battle in our culture, and certainly we understand that there is a battle for that which is true and for that which is right that takes place even in our own homes and in our own lives. This battle is a battle that is ongoing and has been really throughout time. As John writes this letter, it is for, in large part, the purpose of understanding this battle and knowing how to battle for that which is right and for that which is true. And so John writes to these believers that are here, and he writes to them to tell them there are some things you need to understand. There are some things uh, where there's some false teaching that is creeping in, and some false teachers that are coming in and uh, spreading these things. And so you need to grasp it, you need to understand it, and uh, you need to have the, uh, the realization that not everything is right, not everything is true, and you need to recognize what needs to be battled and what doesn't. And so uh, he recognizes this battle. John also, of course, by this time has come face to face with the enemies in this battle. He has been beaten for the faith. 
He uh, later will be uh, marooned to the Isle of Patmos for his faith. He uh, has gone through great tortures for the faith of the gospel. And John has been faithful. John has consistently gone forward. John has served the Lord. And John has uh, just kept on keeping on. And he's come face to face with some of the great trials and some of the great difficulties of being a Christian in the first century. And yet, he's still going. And yet, he's still faithful. And now, as a very old man, he is writing back to this church and uh, to these believers. And he is saying to them, keep on going. Keep on fighting. Keep on laboring. It's worth it. And it's worth being faithful to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, really in this passage, we find this battle. If you remember back a few uh, sections here of the book as we've been coming through this chapter, you'll remember that John wrote to him, and in essence, a few uh, sections ago, a few messages ago, we saw where he said, you're a part of the family. Man, it's exciting to be a part of the family, isn't it? It's exciting to be a part of the family of God, to know that we're saved, to know that we have heaven to look forward to for all of eternity, to know that we've been born a second time, born into the family of God, but not only that, also adopted into the family of God. And what a picture it gives that we're both born and adopted into his family. And and so the reality of the scripture that is there, the reality of the family of which we are a part, and that we get to be brothers and sisters in Christ, co-laboring together, and then co-laboring with... uh, as the Bible would picture it, our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and that we are co-laboring together with him. What an incredible reality. What an incredible opportunity to be a part of the family of God. Then we went into that next section, and a few weeks ago we saw where John said, now you're a part of the family, but you have a tendency to go after some other things. And he called them the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And he in essence said, there's this battle that takes place, And it begins inside of you. There is an enemy inside of all of us. It's called the flesh. It's called a sin nature. We were born with it. And the Bible tells us in Romans 5.12 that whereas by one man, that was Adam, sinned, and death by sin, that death passed upon all men, or that all have sinned. Every person is born with a sin nature. We're sinners by nature. But then in our lifetime, we choose to sin. And so we are sinners by choice. And so we know that there is inside of us that old sin nature. And while it is positionally dead, it sure seems to be awfully alive, doesn't it? We battle on a regular basis against the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And so John writes and he says, hey, uh, the reality is that there is a, uh, a, an enemy within you. I believe it was D.L. Moody said, my greatest enemy is the one that walks beneath the brim of my own hat. And, uh, and that was the first enemy he revealed. But now today he's going to look at the next enemy. Now today he's going to say it's not just that there's an enemy within us in nature, but there also are enemies without and there is an enemy that, is, uh, that you're going to have to deal with. And there's an enemy that you're going to have to pay attention to if you're going to fight the battle for truth. So John is writing in large part in this letter to help these, as he would call them, little children. Uh, some of those would be that they're newly saved. We've seen that much of the uh, time when he uses this wording, it would be the idea of dear ones. The people that he loves so much, those who are saved, that he has such a heart and a burden for. He wants these little children, and he wants them to be helped in the faith to understand there's a battle, and they must become warriors in the fight. It's not enough to just merely be saved, but they must be battling. They must be warring for the cause of truth and for the cause of right. Licinius was the emperor of Rome. 
The Colosseum was in full use and as, at the height of its popularity. The emperor had what were known as his wrestlers. The wrestlers were the best of the best. They were the highest trained of the military. They were the men who, uh, if you would think today of our military, as next week we'll honor our uh, veterans, if you think today of our military, you might think of the Green Berets or the Navy SEALs. You might think of those who are extremely well-trained, SEAL Team 6. I mean, the best of the best of the best. The ones that they send in when they're not sure that anyone else can get the job done. The ones they send in when uh, maybe the battle is at the hottest, maybe when the battle is at the point that... uh, they, they just need an extra ability to overcome the enemy. This would be for their day, for Licinius. These were his wrestlers. And they had started before him. But in Rome, the Roman wrestlers were the best trained. In the Colosseum, they were the greatest athletes. They would perform in the Colosseum and they would fight against uh, different animals and against people that would, had been condemned to death. And, and these wrestlers were the best of the best. Nobody doubted that these were the greatest trained men in the entire kingdom. They would come out whenever they would wrestle in the Colosseum or perform in the Colosseum. And they would stand before the emperor's throne and they would yell out in a chant, We the wrestlers wrestling for thee, O emperor, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. And then they would go about their feats and the crowds would cheer. In the midst of the winter one year, the Roman forces got bogged down. They were in uh, Gaul, which would be uh, modern-day France, that area of the world, and they just could not seem to overcome the enemy that they were battling. They were laboring, and they were fighting, and they couldn't get past, and, and the emperor wanted them to keep moving and taking more ground, and so finally he called in his wrestlers, and he said, look, I'm sending you to this battle. Get in there. Get the battle done. Just knock, you know, take the enemy out so that we can move forward and take more ground once again. And so the wrestlers were deployed, they came to Gaul, they joined into the battle and prepared to join into the battle and and they began to do their work and their duty and and somewhere along that deployment, while they were out and they were camped next to a lake, word came to Licinius that uh, his men, some of them, had converted to Christianity. Well, he couldn't have this. He decided that, of course, they couldn't have uh, such things as Christianity creeping into the Roman army. And so he sent to the director, Vespasian, and he said to the leader of this band, any who claim Christ must be put to death. Vespasian organized the men. He brought them out and he said to him, any of you who would claim Christ, he said, take two steps forward. And to his utter shock and amazement, 40 men stepped forward. He, again, kind of said, let let, let me give you another opportunity. He said, you know, uh, the emperor has declared that anyone who claims the name of Christ, any of you men, must be put to death. And and so any that will claim the name of Christ, knowing that you'll lose your life, step forward. Those 40 men, again, step forward. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to give you until tonight. Vespasian loved his men. He was a good leader. And I'll give you until tonight to reconsider. He said, tonight the emperor's word must go forward. He was loyal to his emperor as well. And so he allowed them until that evening. He reorganized them once again. He said, all those who, after a day of thinking and contemplating, will decide to uh, still claim the name of Christ, step forward. And those same 40 men step forward. Vespasian said, you know, I, as he thought about it, he thought, I don't want their, their fellow soldiers whom they have labored and battled alongside to have to put their own friends to death. And 
So he said, here's what we're going to do. There was a frozen pond or a lake there. And he said, uh, the lake, some uh, in history you can find where uh, they said that it was frozen enough to drive a chariot on. He said to those men, strip all of your armor and strip all of your clothing and walk out onto that ice of the lake. And he said, but here on the shore, we will have fires that are burning full and bright. And at any moment that you decide in the night, you can come and warm yourself by the fire. When you come, that will be recognized as you recanting Christ. Those 40 men took off all of their garments and they went out onto that ice. And as they went out onto that ice, they began to chant, 40 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. They stood out there through the night. They could hear them chanting. And Vespasian stood by the fire and waited and, and, and expecting that after a while they would begin to come back. And he noticed the cry got more faint as the night went on. Finally, somewhere in the middle of the night, one of those wrestlers had, had all that he could take and he chose that he would go ahead and recant Christ. And he came back to that fire to warm himself. As he came back to that fire, Vespasian had been hearing this throughout the night and he'd been watching the goings-on and he had heard over and over 40 wrestlers for thee and so he listened very closely and he heard much more faint than previous because of the weakening of their condition, but he heard 39 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. Vespasian stood there for a moment by that fire and Someone said perhaps as he stood by the light of that fire, he saw the greater light that night. He stood and apparently he turned his heart to Christ. Receiving Christ as his Savior and recognizing that it was more than just a passing thing, he realized these men had something that obviously was worth dying for and an eternity worth going to. And so as that man came and warmed himself by the fire, Vespasian took off all of his armor and then he stripped himself of all of his clothing. And as he walked out, he could hear that faint cry, 39 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ. But Vespasian, as he came with a loud voice, began to say, 40 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ. And they joined once again with renewed hope, the chant, 40 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. Oh, what a story. What a story of heroism. What men that would give their lives and by the next morning they would give their life and lay down their life for the cause of Christ. One version of the story, I don't know, there's some different variations, but one version of the story says that uh, the emperor was so upset that he ordered them that their bodies be burned and that their bodies were burned and then cast into a flowing river, the ashes into a flowing river. And the river went down and at a bend in that river, there was a, uh, an area where some of the bone of those burned bodies got stuck and that churches came and they rescued those pieces of bone and that they took them uh, as a reminder of all that those men had given and it became a great encouragement to the churches of the area. I don't know if that happened. What I do know is this. Historically, you can look and see the churches knew of their sacrifice and that the churches were greatly encouraged by the reality of these men, the greatest trained, the greatest of warriors, laying down their life for the cause of Christ. You know, this morning we look at someone like that and we say, what heroism? We look at a story like that and we say, uh, what men? We look at a story and we say, you know, I would hope that I would be willing to make the same decision. And as difficult as it might be in the middle of the night, I hope I'd be faithful. I hope I would stand and I hope I would lay down my life. And, and I expect that I would, I'm sure most of us would say, but, but I, I would hope that would be the case. 
Yet the reality is this, most of us are not asked to give our lives. In fact, in the United States of America, none of us have been asked to give our lives for the cause of Christ. But we have been asked to be a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. Can I say, if we're not willing to be a living sacrifice, it leaves a lot of doubt we'd be willing to stand all night in the freezing cold and freeze to death. And so as we come to this passage, John is writing and he's saying, listen, there's a battle. There's a battle like these men fought. They perhaps fought it more openly and outwardly and and, and in a more clear picture as they laid down their physical life. But this battle is not unique to those 40 wrestlers and it's not unique to the people of other countries. This battle is one that every believer must fight. The battle for truth. The battle to stand for that which is right. The battle to be sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder tonight or this morning, to what extent are you willing to go to stand and battle for truth? I want you to notice with me some elements of the battle that John points out to these readers. First of all, he tells them that there is an imitator. He says, look, in this battle, it's not all fought outwardly. In fact, much of this battle is about trickery. In this battle, there is an imitator who comes in and he's going to look like he's really good. He's going to look, in fact, like Jesus himself. He tells us about him in verse number 18, little children, it is the last time. As you've heard, that Antichrist shall come. You know, I don't know if the Antichrist that's going to be the Antichrist, I personally think that probably Satan has somebody ready all the time because he doesn't know what hour that the Lord will come. And and so I think that's probable. I can't prove that, but it would make sense. But I don't know if that Antichrist that'll be the Antichrist uh, that will stand and be the abomination of desolation and all those. I don't know if he's alive today, but I think it's possible. And John writes here and he says, hey, you know it's the end time. Now, if he was saying a couple thousand years ago, it's the end time and that Antichrist is almost here. Don't you think maybe we're pretty close in 2020? Now, we look at our country, and we tend to look at things from an American standpoint, and sometimes we watch some of the things that take place here, and we go, wow, we must be almost to the end. And then I think sometimes maybe somebody in the Philippines or somewhere like that where they're seeing great revival, they might be saying, you know, we've surely got a little while. Look at all the people being saved. And so I don't know exactly when the last day is, and neither do you. I don't know exactly when the Father's going to say to the Son, Son, go get your bride, but I'm looking forward to the day. I don't know exactly what the timing of all this is. I don't know exactly when the Antichrist will uh, step out and become known. I don't know exactly all of that, and uh, nobody does, but we know that we are close. And we know if John was saying a couple thousand years ago we're close, today we're a couple thousand years closer. We also know this, that the Bible does not tell us there's any signs of the rapture. The signs are all of the second coming. And the signs of the second coming have been accomplished. That means we're at least seven years closer to that to being out of here. Amen? The reality is, there's a likelihood we're very close. And John says, be on guard. This Antichrist is coming, but he doesn't stop there. Look what he goes on to say. He says, uh, that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Uh, Then he's going to talk again about 
the spirit of Antichrist here in a few minutes. And so uh, there is a spirit, there are many, and what it is, he's saying, look, everyone who's going to reject Jesus as God, everyone who teaches a doctrine different than that, a doctrine just means a body of teaching, who teaches something different than that, they're an Antichrist. Christ. They are denying Christ as being the Messiah, the one true God, God in the flesh. And so he says, anyone who does not believe Jesus is God in the flesh, they're an anti-Christ. They are one who is battling against him, and you need to be on guard of those things. So in the church here uh, that John is writing to, he is writing and saying, listen, already in the church, in the first century Christianity, that spirit of Antichrist has come, and there are people that are teaching those things. These are Antichrists. Be on guard. Now, we can surely say today there are Antichrists in our culture. Amen? And so here's the reality. We don't have to know is it this year or is it in our lifetime that the Antichrist will stand? But we know in our lifetime we'll come into uh, contact and we will battle against Antichrist, those who would deny that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. And then he's going to tell them this. Verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. It's an interesting phrase. I heard a man the, one time at a preacher's meeting, he stood and he preached a whole message on this, this verse. And his whole message was that everybody who had gotten mad at him through the years and left his church, that they went out from us because they were obviously never saved or they wouldn't have gotten mad at me. And uh, they obviously had no spirituality about them. And they went out from us because they weren't of us. And they were never one of us because they got mad at me. Can I just say that has nothing to do with this verse? Now, as a pastor, that would be great if that's what it said. You can never get mad at me no matter what I do or how mean I am. That'd be great. But that's not what it says. Here's what he's talking about. The context is the Antichrist. Some people that sit in churches like this will hear the teaching of an Antichrist and they'll believe it. You know why? Because they're good at it. They're an imitator. They sound like they're a Christian. They sound like they're speaking the Bible. Uh, let me give you a for instance. For instance, one anti-Christ religion that would be out there is the religion known as the Mormon religion. They're an anti-Christ. But you know what they say? They say, we believe the Book of Mormon and the King James Bible. Now, the problem is they don't agree, so it's real hard to believe both. But they say, we agree with that. We agree with everything in the King James Bible. If you go and ask a Mormon, well, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? They'll say, oh, absolutely, we believe that. What they won't tell you is, we believe that he was natural born, and uh, he's not God himself, he's merely the son of God. And we, we also believe that Satan is the son of God. And the reason that Satan ended up being bad is because his plan for the world, God did not like and rejected. And Jesus ended up being good because his plan for the world, God did like and he accepted. And so therefore, now that's why they're at odds with each other. And I said, that's absolutely false. The reason that there is a battle there is because Jesus is Almighty God himself. Satan is a created being who has no relation to him. And Satan came and attempted to ascend the very throne of God and take the place of God in heaven. And he was kicked out of heaven for all of eternity. He was kicked out of his place of authority. He was kicked out from being the crowning cherub. 
he now uh, is in this world and he's the God of this world and there's a battle there that takes place that one day Jesus will be the final victor and he will kick Satan into hell uh, into the lake of fire for all the rest of eternity and praise God we already know he's already on the victory side amen and so we know the story, but if you were to go and ask, and, and here's what happens, a lot of people come to know Christ as their Savior, they make a decision to receive Christ, and then somebody from another religion like that comes in, and they sound really good, but they're actually teaching something that is anti-Christ. So he says, when people like that, when they go out from us, when they start believing that lie, they were never really of us. Now, it may be somebody's a brand new Christian and just never had an opportunity to learn. But here I believe the application or the context is John's talking about those who have been in church. You know, one day that actual Antichrist is going to come, the Antichrist, the one who's the abomination of desolation, and he's going to fool many. And many will be uh, revealed that perhaps either they never knew Christ as Savior or they were not having an understanding of the things of God. They weren't in the Word of God. And we see here there's an imitator. We see his appearance. He'll look like Christ. And we see his appeal in verse number 19. He'll draw those, even who should know better and have heard the truth. He says, "For if they, uh, verse 19, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, they went out because they were fooled by that Antichrist that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So he says there are some people, even in good churches, who are sitting there and they've never truly accepted Christ as Savior. Perhaps they would say we know God, but God never knew them. There was never a relationship there. They prayed a prayer, but they never really repented. They never really came and began a relationship with God. And all they did was put on a facade on the outside. But there was never a change of heart, a relationship with God that actually was there and real and vibrant. And that's why we must make sure that we have a right relationship, that we have truly come to him and asked for forgiveness of our sin, that we didn't just say a prayer. Uh, I've had people say, well, you know, I've prayed that many times. Great. But it won't get you to heaven to say a prayer many times. That's what the Catholics rely on. They say a rosary over and over and over, but it won't get them to heaven. And I've met people that go to a Baptist church even, and they say, well, every night I pray that prayer. I'm sorry, but praying that prayer over and over is not what gives a person a relationship with God. What gives them a relationship with God is a one-time moment of decision that they turn from everything else, they turn to Christ and receive Christ as their Savior in the forgiveness of sin. So here we find that there's a, uh, an understanding. These would be those that'll come and they'll say, but Lord, we prophesied in your name. Lord, we knew you. And they'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Now, I don't say that this morning to scare anyone. If you're saved, you don't need to convince yourself you're not so you can get saved. That's not what I'm saying. If you prayed a prayer when you got saved, good, so did I. I'm not saying that you uh, can't pray a prayer. That's, and there are some that teach that, and I'm not saying that at all. I'm just simply saying a prayer alone, repeating some words and saying a right prayer, that's not it. But it's a turning of the heart and the receiving of Christ. It's a relationship with him. And so we see here the imitator. He's going to come in and, and already there are those and that spirit of Antichrist is in our world and it is drawing people away from the one true God. I see the imitator, then I see the instruction. Now John's going to give them some understanding, some instruction. He says to him in verse number 20, but ye have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. Isn't that a great word? 
You have an unction. But what does it mean? It really means an anointing. That would be how we oftentimes would say it. The same word will be translated anointing in a few minutes here in this passage. Uh, And so here's what he's saying. There's a relation to the truth that we have. So the instruction he gives them, number one, is you have to have a relation to the truth. You need to know what the truth is. How do you know the truth? Well, the Holy Spirit of God is who gives us and, uh, and reveals truth. And so the Holy Spirit, you have this unction, this anointing. That's the Holy Spirit from the Holy One. And you know all things, all right? So we take the Word of God, and we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God helps us understand the Word of God, absolute truth, so that now we can understand and know truth. So he says, listen, first of all, you've got to have a relation to the truth. Secondly, then, you have to recognize the truth. Verse 21, he says, I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. So here's what he says. You understand there's no error in truth. For if there's any admixture of error, then it's false. So he says, listen, you understand that. So here's what you need to do. You need to be able to recognize what is true and what is not true. And so he says to him, I'm not writing to you because you don't have any clue of the truth. You have at this point, especially, they're starting to have somewhat of the canon of Scripture. He's saying to him, you have some understanding. You have the Holy Spirit. You have parts now of the Word of God. At this time, for us, we have the completed canon, or uh, that just means all of the Bible. We have the understanding of the truth. We have what we need there. So he says, you need to study it. You need to recognize it. You need to be in the Word of God so that you have a relation to the truth through the Holy Spirit of God. And then a recognition of the truth because you're studying the word of God so it takes both we must be studying we must be knowing the truth and not uh, by the way we need to be in church and here preaching but if that's all you get you're going to be an anemic Christian we need more than just a couple times a week here this is hopefully just a recharge of the batteries a little bit but hopefully you're studying through the week and studying the word of God and asking the Holy Spirit for understanding and guidance and you say why would I do that if I can come to church and get it Because you need to recognize truth. You can't do that if you're not studying personally the Word of God. So he tells us we have, first of all, the Holy Spirit, the relation to truth. We have the Word of God. We need to study it so we can recognize truth. Then in verse number 22, he says, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. So again, he's coming back to this Antichrist. So we see the relation to the truth. The recognition of truth. Now, here's his instruction. There's going to be some resistance to truth. So I'm instructing you. This is what John's saying to these believers. I'm instructing you. You need to walk in the Spirit. I'm instructing you to study the Word. Have an understanding of it. But then I'm giving you some instruction. Understand there's going to be some resistance. There's going to be those who try to say other things. Look at verse 23. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. He's saying to him, listen, uh, you've got to be able to recognize, you've got to come back to this vital truth. Jesus is God in the flesh. And those who don't agree with that, we cannot really have any fellowship as far as churches would go and things of that nature. We can't fellowship because that is the vital thing. They're an antichrist if they don't believe Jesus is God in the flesh. 
We have to understand that. We have to grasp it. So Paul says it to him a couple of times. And in the instruction part here, he says, listen, have a relation to the truth. Recognize the truth. And then realize there's resistance to the truth. And then verse number 24, he tells us to remain in the truth. Let that therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. This would be the beginning of this church time. Uh, so they've heard from Christ and the apostles. If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye shall also continue in the Son and in the Father. Here's what he's saying. Just remain in the truth. Don't go out looking for something new. Just remain in the truth. Don't go try to uh, be the one to come up with something in Scripture nobody's ever thought of before. Just remain in the truth. Just be faithful to that which has been being taught from the very beginning. It's not about finding the new thing. It's not about finding the next cause. It's not about the next social agenda. No, it's remaining in the truth. And a lot of the time people will, will come and they'll say, you know, that just seems kind of boring. I mean, there, where's the excitement? We want to go, we want the new horizons, the new exciting things. But you know what, the Christian life, it's really not about the next exciting thing. Now let me also say in the same breath, in essence, the Christian life's exciting. Amen? If we live it right, it's exciting and thrilling. But it's not about looking for the next thrill. It's about saying, I'm just going to remain in the truth. Just going to stay steadfast. I'm just going to keep being who God wants me to be. I'm just going to keep on going. I'm just going to keep on being faithful. They say in this culture and in this day, you know, you really can't build a church with the old-time music and the old-time ways and the old-time standards and old-time preaching. I mean, who's going to come listen to somebody yell at them for 30 or 40 minutes on a Sunday morning? The reality is this. We don't do it the way we do it because we think it'll work. We do it the way we do it because of what the Bible says. Amen? And if, if, if we live in a culture where churches like ours don't grow as big of numbers, or if we live in a culture where they grow by leaps and bounds, the reality is this, the goal is for God to be glorified. The goal is that we remain in the truth. It's not that we have the next big thing or the next big agenda. And so here he tells them, here's the instruction, have a relationship to the truth, the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, have the recognition of the truth, be studying the word of God. Verse 21, have a resi- uh, understand there will be resistance to the truth. You're going to have to battle, you're going to have to be faithful, you're going to have to work at it. Then number four, remain in the truth in verse number 24. Then we see here he gives us an incentive in verse 25. This is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. A few times in the book, he's going to give us the same incentive. You know why you should do it? Because God's given you eternal life. You know why you should be faithful? Because you're going to one day stand before him. He's given you eternal life. It's worth it. Be faithful. It won't always be fun. It won't always be exciting. It won't always be the best uh, you know, moment of life. There's going to be some times where you think, is it really worth it? Is it really worth going on? Is it really worth standing on the ice and chanting, I'm just trying to win the victory for thee and from thee the victor's crown? Is it really worth being out here where it seems like nobody else is interested in being? But he gave you eternal life. And it's worth it to be faithful to the one who gave to you eternal life. That's the argument John's making. And so we see the incentive for this because Christ has done so much for us because he gave us eternal life. And then notice finally, he's going to end this passage of scripture, verses 27 to 29, by telling us how to be immovable. The immovable one. So we see here uh, the incentive is eternal life. So he says the incentive for not moving, the incentive for not changing. The Bible tells us to be uh, cautious 
someone and not to be someone who's given to change. So how do we do that? How do we just be steadfast? How do we be faithful? How do we be what we're supposed to be all the time? How do we just keep staying in the truth? So he's going to tell us how to be one of those people in these last three verses. First of all, verse 27, he says, But the anointing, that's that same word again, uh, as unction, the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. What's he saying? All right, verse 27. Let me uh, simplify it, and then I'll explain it. Here's what he's saying. Be empowered by the Spirit. If you're going to be an immovable one, if you're someone who will uh, be willing to fight the fight for fi- and, and, and faithfully fight the fight, for that which is true, that which is right, and be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. If you're going to be that kind of a person, you must be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Your own power won't do it. Your own willpower is not enough. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit of God. He says that anointing, that's the Holy Spirit, which you have received of him, abideth in you. The Holy Spirit of God abides in you. And notice this, he says, you need not that any man teach you. So, is he saying then, well, we ought to go, and uh, when we get into our Sunday school class next time, then we ought to stand up and say, you know what, uh, Mr. Sunday School Teacher, I don't need any man to teach me, for the Bible says it. I already have it. Should we stand in the middle of church and say, Pastor, Pastor, thanks for uh, working this week on a message, but I mean, really, we don't need you to teach us anymore. We're just going to kind of have some fellowship time. We all already have it figured out. Obviously, that's not what he's saying, amen? So what's he saying? Here's what he's saying. There's two elements to this. The first element is, you don't have a need for anyone to teach you. He's saying this, you don't have to go somewhere else to find out what the Bible is saying. You have the ability, because you have the Holy Spirit of God, to study the Word of God and have the Holy Spirit of God reveal to you what I'm saying in my Word. He's not saying don't let anyone else tell you anything or teach you anything. Uh, I do think we ought to be like the Bereans and go and restudy it and and make sure. But he's saying here, look, uh, it's not just a matter of uh, you saying, well, I can't learn anything. I don't have any ability. And, And, you know, I meet Christians all the time, and you probably do too. They're scared to teach a Sunday school class. Uh, to uh, children, or they're scared to uh, have a conversation about the scripture. And really, when you dig down into it, they say, but I just don't feel like I have as much knowledge as someone else. Hold on, you don't have to have as much knowledge as someone else. One reason you may not is because that other person's been using it and teaching a class. You know, God doesn't give us an understanding so we can just hold it. He gives it to us to use it. So we need to be teaching, we need to be, uh, you know, working, we need to be laboring, and that doesn't always mean that we're teaching a Sunday school class. Can I say to you, I really don't have any interest in having someone teach a Sunday school class that's not willing to clean a toilet, or willing to sweep a floor. Because the reality is, if they're too big to sweep a floor, then they are not really usable to God, there's too much pride there. Now, they may not be the one sweeping the floor all the time, but if they're not willing then I have no interest in them teaching a Sunday school class. And and we ought to have an attitude that says, I'm just here to serve God. Amen. Didn't mean to put a kink in the hose. But anyway, uh, the reality is we ought to be saying, Lord, uh, we're just here to serve. We're just here to use use us however you would want to. And so we see here this immovable one, somebody who's guided and directed by the Holy Spirit of God. And they are just willing to do anything. But what they're doing is they're saying, 
I understand I don't have to have, uh, I don't have to go to Bible college in order to have an understanding of the scripture. What I need is the Holy Spirit of God and some intense time of study, and I can understand it. Now, it also does not mean that they're afraid to come and say, you know, uh, Pastor, I've been working on this, this passage, and I think I understand it to mean this. Does that make sense? So there's still a teachable spirit there. Now, I believe here's the other side of that. This person isn't just running around looking for teachers all the time. In other words, we live in a culture, and this is what's happening here to these believers John is writing to. There's false teachers that have come into the church, and they act like they're teaching the Bible, and they use a lot of words like they're teaching the Bible, but they're actually teaching a false doctrine. So here's in part what he's saying to them. Look, what you need is the Holy Spirit of God, and you need to study the Bible. And what you don't need to do is run around all the time trying to find the next interesting thing to study and go around all the time trying to find new teachers. Because the goal isn't to go find a bunch of new teachers. The goal is to understand the Word of God. We live in a day where this is happening on a whole new level. We live in a day where people jump online and they find teachers. Now they're starting to call them, uh, what's the word, thought leaders. Can I just tell you, if they call themselves a thought leader, go find someone that's at least smart enough to call themselves a teacher or something. I mean, they call them, they think that they're the leaders of thought in our culture because they have a Facebook page with some followers. And the reality is that we live in a culture where people in churches like ours get caught up uh, listening to people like the wacko out in Arizona. Don't even go look him up if you don't know who I'm talking about. Uh, I mean, people that are out there, people that are destroying churches, like, and I'm saying it literally destroying churches like ours. Why? Because there are people that with good intentions, most of the time, they start out saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to try to find more Bible teaching, but they end up listening to the wrong people, and therefore they end up believing the wrong things, and they get led astray because they're just looking for new teachers all the time. So what he's saying is this, we ought not be out, and it's one thing, and if you have an interest in being out and you're not sure where to go and you like to hear preaching and uh, things of that nature, I can give you some people that are trustworthy, that you can listen to, ask me, I'd be glad to help you. But we don't want to just be out on Google Googling who's a good teacher out there of the Bible because there's a lot of danger out there. And, and the reality is we'll end up right here where we end up with a bunch of false teaching and then we believe false teaching. So he says here, you need to be empowered by the Spirit, studying the Word of God. This is how to be an immovable one. Verse 28, he says, not only do you need to be empowered by the Spirit, but you need to be expecting the Son. He says, and now, little children, abide in Him, that when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. And we ought to be saying, I'm living in such a way, I'm looking forward to seeing the Savior, and I'm ready to give an account. We ought to be empowered by the Spirit. In fact, if we're going to be immovable, we must be empowered by the Spirit. We must be expecting the Son, looking forward to His coming. And then he tells us in verse number 29, If ye know that He is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of Him. I see here he says, if you're going to be an immovable one, there must be the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the expecting of the Son, and then there will be evidence of salvation. It'll be evident, it will be clear that you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder this morning, do you have that relationship? Do you know him as your Savior? And then I wonder this morning, are you one of those immovable ones? I'm not talking necessarily physically about standing on the frozen lake. 
But you know, sometimes in life, we come to a place that it feels really lonely. Like we're just standing out on a frozen lake and nobody's doing it that way anymore. And the world will try to tell us, you know, you can't, you can't have a church like your kind of church anymore. And you can't have a church that's just set and steadfast on the word of God anymore. You can't just keep doing those things and really expect anything good to happen. And you know what? Sometimes the world tries to say, hey, you're just out on some frozen lake, standing there on your bare feet. It's pointless. It's useless. Why even try to do all those old time things? Can I say to you, when we get there and when we feel that way, we need to be immovable ones. Oh, not immovable that we have to always do everything the way that we've always done everything. But when it comes to the doctrine of the word of God, when it comes for living a life that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're saying, I'm just willing to stand. And if no one else stands with me, I'm willing to stand firm. I'm willing to be faithful. They say of those wrestlers, they were a brigade, a unit. They say that unit would have had somewhere between three and 6,000, probably around 3,000 soldiers. And some were, of course, a little more highly trained and others not as highly, but they were the greatest of the greatest of the soldiers. Can you imagine out of 3,000, 2,960 standing there watching as you're one of the 40 taking a step forward. Out of that 2,960, at least, there must have been some pressure to just stay in line. All you've got to do is not step forward. And you know what? The world around us tries to put that same pressure. Just don't step forward for the cause of Christ. And I say to you this morning, let's take a step forward. Let's say we're not going to slow down. We're not going to stay in line. We're going to take two steps forward and say, I'm going to stand to be counted. I'm one of his. I'm going to be faithful to him. I'm going to be one of the immovable ones who sells out above anything and beyond anything else. I'm going to sell out for the cause of Christ. Father, we love you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, we recognize there will be enemies. There will be battles. There will be struggles. But we recognize those really are not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is how we deal with that. And how we deal with that is simply by being faithful to you. Simply by just understanding how to be led by the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, you're the one who must empower us. Would you help if there's one here that needs to be saved today, that they'll have the courage to make that decision even this morning. Then, Lord, would you help those of us that are saved, that we will step forth and be counted make a difference for the cause of Christ. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Heads